Everyone in this room this morning was born into a family. Now, this is not a family of your choosing. Some of us were born into great families with great parents, great siblings. Others of us might have been born into families with not so great parents, not so great siblings. So for some, the term father carries with it negative connotations. Some people grew up with absent fathers, abusive fathers, or disconnected fathers. So when the Bible speaks of God in familial terms, it doesn't always evoke love and appreciation. And yet, the fact remains that God is willing and able to call all of those that repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ His children, thereby making Him our Father. J.I. Packer, the great British theologian, says, For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. In our sermon today, John is going to help us better learn the significance of God as Father and we as His children. But let me caution you, before we even get into the text, that the phrase, children of God, does not describe all human beings. Yes, all human beings have been created in the image of God. Not all of humanity, however, are children of God. The Old Testament reveals this truth. When God established the covenant with Abraham, which was passed down to Isaac, which was passed down to Jacob, and it continues with the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, it becomes the church. God, from the beginning, set out a special group of people to be his children. My hope and prayer today is that if you are in Christ, you will leave today being blown away by the significance of God as your Father. And if you are not in Christ, that you would, by God's grace, through faith, receive Him as Father. So as we work our way through the text today, the love of the Father is demonstrated in this short little passage in three ways. Number one, by our name. Number two, by our future. And number three, by our purity. So the love of God is demonstrated in this passage by our name, by our future, and by our purity. Number one, by our name. One of the commentaries I was reading in preparation for this sermon pointed out that in 1 John, the word for love, or the noun form of it, which is agape love, is used 46 times in 1 John. That means for every 1,000 words, it is used every 18 times. Now, that's number one in all of the New Testament. 1 John uses agape love more than any other book in the New Testament. And guess what the number two book is? The Gospel of John. 
John uses agape love 44 times in his gospel. Third place is significantly lower, and it's in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, where agape love is referenced 20 times. So you have 46 times in 1 John, 44 times in the Gospel of John, and then only 20 times in Ephesians. Obviously for John, love is a really big deal. And the storyline of the entire Bible is a story of God's love for his people. In Genesis 1, we have God creating the world. That is an act of love, friends. God did not have to create the world. He was in perfect fellowship as the triune God by himself. But yet in love, he demonstrated through creation, through his prized creation, human beings, that he in fact loved us. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin, he could have ended that grand experiment. And he could have said, no more. But instead, even though he cast them out of the Garden of Eden, he still gives them the opportunity to be fruitful and multiply. Another act of his love. In Genesis 11, when God confuses the languages of the people as they are building that great tower so that they could be like God, he scatters them across the known world and he confuses their languages. That's actually an act of love. Because had humanity continued to build that tower, continued to think of themselves as God, it would have ended in chaos. The covenant that God establishes with Abram in Genesis 12 is an act of love as God promises to raise up a great nation from Abraham's descendants, give them a land to live in. The law which God gives Moses in the book of Exodus is an act of love. God is saying to Israel, you are my special people, now here is how I want you to live. He did not leave them in the dark. He gave them guidance and direction. The construction of the tabernacle is an act of love so that God's people could enjoy his presence. The judges that God raised up was an act of love to steer God's people back to him. Giving of kings to the nation of Israel was an act of love. Ancient Israel getting to experience David and Solomon and so many others, in spite of their many flaws, brought great blessings to Israel. The prophets that God raised up, they served as mouthpieces to urge the people to repentance and to return back to Yahweh. God could have left them in their sin. He didn't do it. He gave them prophets to get them to come back to him. That is an act of love. If God didn't love Israel, he wouldn't have sent the prophets. In the New Testament, he sent Jesus to be the Messiah for his people and to save them from their sins through his death on the cross. And even after his death and resurrection, he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he promises his followers, I'm going to send you a helper. One who is going to help you navigate what it's like to follow after me, even though I now sit 
at the right hand of the Father. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. Again, another gift of God's love to his people. What kind of love then has the Father given us? The kind of love demonstrated from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. If you are doubting, questioning God's love today, if you are prone to wonder if God loves you, open your Bible and read from cover to cover the story of his love for his people. So if you are in Christ today, you are children of God. Notice who does the calling and who does the receiving. The Father is the subject We are the objects. The Father is the sender. We are the recipients. God designates that title to us by His grace. No one can achieve, earn, or accomplish the title of child of God. We simply receive it by repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sins as our substitute. So if you are not in Christ today, then you are, in fact, a spiritual orphan. You have no spiritual father and you have no spiritual home. So I would invite you today to join the family of God. Paul illustrates this concept which we call adoption so eloquently in Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 15 he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. John points out in this passage that the relationship between Christians and the world will not always be easy. The world doesn't know God, and therefore, they don't know Christians, and they don't understand Christians, and they wonder why we do what we do. And as John is writing to these Christians, dealing with false teaching and false converts, he found it important to remind them of the difference between the world in between Christians. Do you ever feel tension with the world? Now, I'm not here to put up a wall and completely isolate ourselves from the world. And that's not what John is talking about here. We need to know lost people. We need to love lost people. We need to minister to lost people. We should share the gospel with lost people. But nevertheless, there is this tension that exists between those that are in Christ and those that are not in Christ. If there's no tension, it is possible that perhaps we have spilled over too much into the world to where there's basically no difference between the way we live and the way lost people live. But in the same way, we should expect lost people to act like lost people. So we really, honestly, we don't need to get bent all out of shape when we see lost people acting as the Bible teaches us that they will act. 
We really shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be shocked when people that have not been regenerated act in a way contrary to what God's Word teaches. So just take a deep breath. Relax. Lost people are lost. Love them. Show them grace and mercy. Point them to the gospel. Do not put a standard on lost people to act like they're Christians. They're not Christians. Urge them to repent and believe in faith. Share the gospel with them. Invest in them. Invite them to church. Show them how you live your life. But at the end of the day, if they're not living like you do, don't be surprised. So there is this tension that exists. As we try to follow Christ and pursue holiness because we are in fact his children and he is in fact our father, understand that the way we live will be different. Perhaps even strange and weird to those that are not in Christ. When we come home back to our neighborhood every Sunday after church, our neighborhood is full of cars parked in their driveway. Full of people who did not get up and gather with a church family on Sunday. And I'm not appalled by this. I'm not shocked by this. Because many of the people in our neighborhood are not saved. And it's the same way with people you know. That you work with. That you go to school with. That live around you. They have never been converted to faith in Christ. So there is this tension that exists between us and so many others in the world. And God demonstrates his love to us. John reminds the readers in this passage. Actually, they're not readers. More than likely, they're hearing what John is saying. He demonstrates his love to the people in his context and to us today by reminding us that we are his. That he is, in fact, our father. But number two, he also demonstrates to us that we have a future. John reemphasizes again, those he is writing to are God's children. But being a child of God prior to the second coming of Christ is different than when Christ returns. Because we will not be the same when Christ returns. Now, it's very important that we understand. In John's day, in Paul's day, they were also anxiously anticipating and awaiting the return of Christ. They, they thought Jesus was coming in their lifetime in the same way almost every generation that follows has thought Jesus is coming in my lifetime. And we talked recently about the return of Christ. And remember what we said last week, how it's going to happen. We said it's going to be sudden. It's going to be personal. It's going to be visible. And it's going to be bodily. Jesus is returning. Now, there are lots of views out there about how you can interpret Revelation 20. And you can ask Nick all of those questions. Whether you're a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist, he is passionate about the millennium. I, I just threw him under the bus. He's really not. So, there are all sorts of ways to interpret and understand Revelation 20. And when he returns, we know this definitively. If we are already dead prior to his return, he is going to raise up all of those in Christ. 
And then all that are alive, he will call to himself, and we will all receive glorified bodies. Scripture is very clear on that point. This is why John can say in verse 2 of this passage, what we will be has not yet appeared. Because John and the churches that he's writing to were also awaiting the return of Christ, just like we are today. And when Jesus appears, we are told we shall be like him. Do you understand the magnitude of this statement? What will these bodies be like then? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, helps us understand this. So I actually want to read that passage. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42. In his massive treatment on the resurrection of Christ, he says this, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. When we receive our glorified bodies, they're going to be strong. They're going to be healthy. They're going to be powerful. And they are going to be glorious. Now, all of those attributes already describe my body now. (laughs) But for the rest of you, Your bodies will be strong, healthy, powerful, and glorious. You know that's a joke, right? Okay. But don't overlook the last phrase of verse 2. It's very important. It says, because we shall see him as he is. This doesn't mean the way people saw him in his earthly ministry, nor seeing him by the eyes of faith as we do. When we see him... In his return, he will have his heavenly glory. Now, this is the future for everyone who believes in Christ. When I was studying again for this sermon, I came across a theologian who was talking about, you know, why we are so concerned and worried and anxious about death. Not just our own death, but the death of those closest to us. And he brought up a really good point that we don't think about enough. He said the reason that we think so much about death is because it's actually not natural. Death is not natural. It is a result of sin. Yesterday, we had to perform a service for one of the young boys that we invested in who was shot and killed in a drive-by shooting couple of weeks ago and 
in the room, many of his family and friends were there, many of whom are lost. And as I was uh, sharing the word with them, I wanted them to leave knowing this is not the way God intended it to be. This is not the way that it is supposed to be. Sin entered into the picture in Genesis 3, and now, because of that, we experience death. God set it up in Genesis 1 and 2 for all of humanity to have perfect fellowship with him. But when sin entered into the picture, now death becomes a reality. Death is not natural. And we act as if it is, but it is not. So Burkhoff says this, The very thought of death, bereavements through death, the feeling that sickness and suffering are harbingers of death and the consciousness of the approach of death all have a very beneficial effect on the people of God. They serve to humble the proud, to mortify carnality, to check worldliness, and to foster spiritual mindedness. When we come face to face with our own death, or the death of those that are close to us, we are reminded that we are not invincible. That we do not control how long we live on this planet. That all of the hopes and dreams and plans that we have suddenly come crumbling down. John argues, death is actually the completion of sanctification in the life of a believer. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. The last letter that he wrote. He says, I have fought the good fight. You've heard this at funerals. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. While death is the final act of sanctification for Christians, it is also a somber reminder that this is not the way God intended it to be. And it should point us to a Savior who came to save sinners. Death is a reminder of sin, darkness, sadness, and pain, but it points us to one who can save us. John is encouraging these Christians, as he encourages us today, to remember that when you look around the world and you see the world as God intended it not to be, you can still live with hope. That one day he is going to return and he is going to restore everything to the way that it should be. So God not only demonstrated his love to us through our name, children of God. He not only demonstrated his love to us through our future, eternity with him. But number three, he demonstrates his love to us through our purity. In verse 2, he says, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you hope in Christ and anticipate his return, then you should practice holiness. Because Jesus himself is pure. Now, we have to be careful that we distinguish what we mean by purity. There's a difference 
between justification and sanctification. And we've talked about these concepts a lot in our study of 1 John. We are not justified before God because of our purity, because of our righteousness, because of our holiness. We are justified before God because of Christ's righteousness, because of Christ's purity, because of Christ's holiness. John is not teaching in this passage that we should be pure so that we will be justified when Christ returns. That only happens because of what Christ has done on the cross. His righteousness, his purity imputed to us. Christ takes our sin on himself and God can pardon the guilty sinner on the ground of Jesus' death which served as the penalty of our sin. We are justified based on Christ's righteousness. So, number one, Christ takes on the penalty that we deserve so that the judgment of God can now be poured out on Christ instead of us. But number two, we receive Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. So notice our work in justification. There isn't one. Even the faith which justifies, which Paul talks about justification by faith. It should never be seen as a work to make us right with God, but rather faith is our response to the regenerating of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Justification is not what John is talking about in this passage when he talks about purity. He is talking about purity within the context of sanctification. That is, as we said last week, the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us more into conformity with Christ. The process of sanctification is gradual. It's internal. It's subjective. It's worked out experientially and continuous as we grow in Christ. As I said a few weeks ago, we are not all on the same sanctification plan. We do not all grow at the same rate. For the brother or sister that seems to be growing in sanctification at a very rapid rate, we praise God for the work of His Spirit in them. And for the brother or sister that is growing in sanctification at a much slower rate, we praise God for His work in that brother or sister as well. Because in both instances, they are in fact both being conformed more to the image of Christ. So let's not make sanctification a competition between brothers and sisters in Christ. So how then does sanctification functionally happen in our lives? First, we must acknowledge our own weakness to even desire this. We pray for God's grace to make us want to grow in sanctification. Even though we're in Christ, in our flesh, we want nothing more to convince ourselves that sanctification is not important. I've been justified by faith through Christ alone. My eternal destination is secure. So sanctification, if we're not careful within our flesh, we can view it as just something that really good Christians do. As if it's not something that 
we all should want to desire. That's why we have to pray and recognize our own weakness. Because in our flesh, without the work of God's grace within us, we are not just naturally going to desire it. So we must pray that God would give us the desire to grow in sanctification. That's number two. But then number three, we actually have to practice the spiritual disciplines that we're all familiar with that lead to sanctification. Bible intake, prayer, meditation, confession of sin, repentance of sin, scripture memory, congregational worship, and any other number of spiritual disciplines that you would want to exercise. This is, in fact, how we grow to conform to the image of Christ. It's not just some mystical thing that happens. We don't just pray for sanctification and then we just magically become like Jesus. You actually have to put in work. And the reality is, many of us are willing to put in hours upon hours upon hours at our jobs, at the ball field, at ACT prep courses. We're willing to do all of this stuff to be successful in the world's eyes, and we say we don't have time to grow in Christ. And for lack of a better term, that's hogwash. You do have time. And if you don't have time, your priorities, brothers and sisters, need to change. Sanctification doesn't just happen if, if you have enough time at the end of your day. You have to set priorities about what matters most to you, what matters most to your family, what matters most to your children. And it's parents' jobs to be the leaders and step up and make those a priority. The biggest distraction to our sanctification is the world in which we live. And this is not unique to 2022. This is unique to the history of the world. Do not think for a minute that Peter, James, and John were not distracted by the things of their world in the same way that we are distracted by the things of our world today. John Owen, in one of his books, The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded, here's what he says. He's writing in the 1600s. So keep this in mind. In the 1600s, no electricity, no TV, no phones, no movies. And this is what he's writing about being distracted in his day and age. The world is at present in a mighty hurry. And being in many places cut off from all foundations of steadfastness, it makes the minds of men giddy with its revolutions or disorderly in the expectations of them. And when men come with their warmed affections, reeking with thoughts of these things, talking about the world, unto the performance of their attendance to any spiritual duty, it is very difficult for them, if not impossible, to stir up any grace unto a due and vigorous exercise. Now, obviously, he's writing in the 1600s. Sometimes we have to communicate this to a modern audience. What does he mean here? He's mean, he means that the people that lived around him, including himself, 
were so focused on all the other things of the world, their minds were so consumed by everything else that was going on, that when they tried to sit down and practice the spiritual disciplines of the faith, they were distracted. And they didn't have an iPhone. And they didn't have picture shows or movies. They didn't have TV. They didn't have electricity. So we don't make an excuse for our age. Every age has had to decide how important is God going to be to me. So imagine how much more serious we should take our priorities and how we structure our time. The love of the Father in this passage demonstrated through our name, child of God, demonstrated through our future, eternity in heaven with God, and then number three, also in our purity. Christians, as an act of sanctification, to practice what I just preached on, as an act of sanctification, reflect on these points today. Reflect on this passage. Meditate upon it. God has made you his child. He has given you a future. And his grace will sustain you as you pursue purity and holiness. Non-Christian, know that God loves you today. And he stands ready to justify you based on the finished work of his son in your place for your sin. We call you to repent and believe in faith in Christ. Trust in Christ alone today for salvation and experience a new name, child of God, a new future, eternity in heaven, and a new way of living, holiness, by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we respond now to the proclamation of your word. For those of us in Christ, we are overwhelmed by the thought that you would call us your child. For those that are not in Christ, we pray today that your Holy Spirit would awaken within them a desire to repent and believe in faith so that they might be called children of God. As we sing now, we sing as an offering of worship to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.